Aquaman's playing maestro in the Lost Kingdom, Priscilla's experiencing some bad behaviour with the boys in the boat, and the beekeeper's feeling some poor things at Scala. I'm Van Connor. And I'm Adam Ball, and this is Off Screen, your seven-day guide to everything movies. Boom. Hello, and yes, we are back after the festive break. So I hope you had a uh, a lovely Christmas and New Year. We have got eight, yes, eight new movies to talk about today with Van Connor. Uh, so I guess, I mean, we don't have time for our usual chitter-chatter at the start of the uh, show now. We've got to jump straight in, Van. But I know, and it's a shame as well, because it means we have to start talking about Aquaman right off the bat. And Oh, wow. <laughs> I will say, because we've had three weeks off, so we're playing catch-up with a few of these, and obviously there was no way in hell we were going to skip talking about Aquaman. So let's get to go American with it. Aquaman. Aquaman to you and I. The Americans just call him Aquaman for some reason, like it's O-C-K, Waman. Um, so Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, a uh, sequel to, follow-up to the 2019, I think it was, no, 2018, the last one. Uh, still directed by James Wan. 2018, we had the first one. It made a billion. It was very big in China. That might explain why this one, weirdly, in 2023 was in 3D. Uh, Jason Moe is back as Arthur Curry slash Aquaman slash, you know, the heir to Atlantis. Uh, He is now the king of Atlantis. His Loki-like brother Orm, played by Patrick Wilson, is locked up for everything he did in the first movie. And the other villain from the first movie, Black Manta, played by Yaya Adormitin III, who I think is, is he the second or third? Yaya Adormitin II, I think he is, um, is back. And this time he has discovered an ancient mythical weapon. And wouldn't you know it, because it's an Aquaman movie, it's a bloody trident, because that's all oh. they can do in these movies. It's always a trident. <laughs> so oh. they got, they've got one trick and it's always a trident so he's back he's got a new <laughs> trident and he's going to unleash all of this ancient power upon Atlantis forcing Aquaman to team up with his now incarcerated brother to try and save the kingdom have a listen to this trailerific scissor reel we need to find Manta he's different now he's stronger than before <laughs> It's the Black Trident. During King Atlan's time, there were seven kingdoms. And the Trident was a curse upon them all. The Trident's dark magic is spreading. He means to end the bloodline. I don't know what lies ahead, but we can't leave our children in a world without hope. You're not as bad at this as you think. Less trident, more try harder, I think we're going down this route, aren't we? I mean, really. I mean, to be fair, they did a very, very good... They put a lot of effort into it of uh, trying to trying to just basically rip off Thor the Dark World but set it mostly underwater. Um, and the weird thing is, if you're going to nick from a Marvel movie, don't nick from one of the worst ones. That's just idiotic. <laughs> I mean, it would, it would honestly it would be like trying to rip off like the Incredible Hulk or the Eternals or the Marvels or something like that. Uh, no, just don't do it. So, so you get Thor the Damp World. There's moments of levity here and there, but they're not really enough to set it apart. It's, I mean, it's a case of, it's absolute inanity. It's basic, you know, paint-by-numbers superhero filmmaking to the extent where you do understand a lot of the criticism of the subgenre, where a lot of critics come back and go, it's formulaic, and you do feel that formula all the way through. But 
amplified by the fact that this exact movie already got done in 2013 with Chris Hemsworth and, and, and uh, Tom Hiddleston. Funnily enough, there is a point in the movie in which, trying to be sort of humorous about it, Jason Momoa literally says, come on, Loki, let's go, to his mother. And he literally reminds you that a better version of this movie already exists. Also, the the Amber Heard of it is kind of interesting because she doesn't, she, she does have a, a decent enough little role, but she has fewer lines than the King of the Crab people. Which, I'm not sure if that's a result of all the controversy, but yeah, the pillow pooper gets less of a role than than, than the Crab King. Um, I will also say as well, it's saying an awful lot about the quality of the DCEU, which is now officially in the ground, because there is no more DCEU content after this. It's saying a lot oh. about it, that on no fewer than, I think, five occasions, somebody pees in Aquaman's mouth, which... Let that. I mean, the movie ends with a post-credit sequence, which could not be a more succinct summation of this entire attempt at a cinematic universe if they have if they had intended it to be. I mean, even James Wan feels asleep at the wheel here. So, the DCEU is gone for the third time in the past year. It goes out again for the third time in the past year on a whimper rather than a bang. This one drowns with no incident. Avoid it like the plague. I'm sure you have already. Well, there you go. Uh, you can make your own mind up because it is still in cinemas. Uh, okay, next then. I, th- I feel we're moving, we're, we're changing gear here because this mm. is into something a bit more emotional. Bad behaviour. So talk to me about this. So Bad Behaviour, this opened this past week and is the director, a feature directorial debut of uh, Alice Engler, the actress Alice Engler, who does actually appear on screen as well. Um, so the central character of this is Jennifer Connelly, who is a former child star who has you know, gone into, you know, become a parent, has gotten into you know, the age that Jennifer Connelly is, which I think is like 55, I think, Jennifer Connelly. I think she's about 50, 55 now. And... Um, she has checked herself into not so much, but he's a rehab, but it's also a spiritual counseling center as well, run by this, you know, so called guru played by Ben Wishaw, Elon something. I thought the name Elon was an interesting touch. And it all uh, pivots around the relationship that, uh, that Jennifer Connolly. John Connolly's character has with her sort of estranged stunt-performing daughter played by writer-director Alice Engler. And I've got a clip for you. It all pivots around, say, the relationship between the two, which is ignited following an anger and rage incident at the centre in which Connolly lays out her rage at one of of her uh, fellow patients. Have a listen. Um, This this is another sort of trailerific sizzle reel. Let the snogging begin. (laughs) No, 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 I'm joking. No more. Are we there yet? Why do you act like I hate you? Because you act like you hate me. You are a toxic nightmare. (laughs) You should have gotten professional help. Never, ever give in to hope. You're not a bad person. It's just bad behavior. What's stopping you from being enlightened right now? No! Do you feel like this could be a movie that uh, a lot of people might connect with, actually? No. No, no, I don't. <laughs> no, no, I don't really at all. That's I mean, me being all sensual and emotional and you just ruin it. 
Well, I love it when you get sensual ball. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, it's what I mean. I've literally, I've, I've gotten really into making notes uh, with the movies over Christmas. This, this took up three entire pages. Um, wow. I will say, on on balance, it's at least interesting, and that is one of the two most positive things I will say about. It. The other is Jennifer Connelly is awesome. But again, it's Jennifer Connelly. When is she not awesome? Um, this is. I mean, at points, laugh out loud funny, because it's completely missed. It's the kind of film you only do when it's when you're an actor making your first film, because it's very self-indulgent. Like, there are choices with things like edits, where at one point you've literally got Alice Englert's character opening a balcony door, like just literally reaching out, putting her hand to a door handle and opening a door. And she manages to make that last 15 to 20 seconds. It's like, why? Why, why have you done that? Like, like she's improving. Like, she really wants to make him. I'm like, why? What? What? What did the story gain to nothing? This? Why? And it's infuriating. The first thirty minutes of this play, like you're watching, I don't know, the only ways, any kind of reality based show where they sit around and talk about mental health. You know that way that people talk on reality shows where real people don't. Well, the thing yeah. is, yeah. Well, I feel like my boundaries and values, all of that garbage for the first thirty minutes of this, up until the point that Jennifer Connelly explodes. This is one of the worst things I'd seen in the last year. At the point that Jennifer Connelly explodes, however, suddenly it gets a lot more interesting, largely because I was ready to explode myself. The second half of it is all over the place. Some of it's garbage, some of it's amazing. It's decently shot, to be fair. I'm going to say this about another film later on, which also involves an actor directing a movie that they are starring in, and we are going to have serious words about that one. Um, but it's a, it's a complete mixed bag. If it's worth seeing, it is only worth seeing for Jennifer Connelly. So, I don't know. I mean, if you're a Jennifer Connelly diehard, by all means, catch bad behaviour. If you are not... Run. Just run. Run. If you can find anything that you can set aflame and throw it backwards behind you, do that too. Just avoid it. Well, if you would like to make your own mind up, it is in oh. cinemas uh, and has been since the 5th of January. Uh, okay, right. We're going to be back in a moment. We've got two more to look at. We're going to look at Poor Things and next, The Boys in the Boat. So we'll see what Van thought to both of those in just a second. Stay there. Hello and welcome back to the show then. Uh, two more movies to look at in a second. We're going to look at Poor Things, which of course has got Emma Stone in it. I'm really intrigued to know what uh, Van thought of that. But right now, The Boys in the Boat. So then, Van, talk to me. What is this one about? I'm assuming it has something to do with rowing. It does, in fact, have something to do with boys and boats, hence the clever title. It is, in fact, it's based on the non-fiction book of the same name from, I think, 2013. And that in and of itself is the story of the 1936 uh, Washington University rowing team from the United States who went on to represent their country in the 1936 Berlin Olympics. Memorable, of course, in the history books because a certain other athlete went to those uh, those specific Olympics to represent his country, and that was Jesse Owens. Incidentally, uh, there was a movie about Jesse Owens about two or three years ago called Race, and I will compare that movie to this. 
in a moment. So this is the latest directorial effort from one Mr. George Clooney. Um, produced with his producing partner Grant Heslov, written for the screen by Mark L. Smith, and starring Callum Turner as our lead character. Callum Turner is really mostly known for being Eddie Redmayne's brother in the Fantastic Beasts series, if you're one of the five people who remembers anything about the Fantastic Beasts series. So, um... He is the working class hero who, in order to, you know, in order to basically pay his way through school, gets a paying gig on the crew team at the university. Joel Edgerton is the curmudgeonly coach. They come to blows a few times. And, well, it's a sports underdog story, so I'm reasonably sure you can guess how this goes. Here's the point in the movie that you will have predicted comes after he's been kicked off the team and wants to get back on. Have a listen. What can I do for you, Joel? On my seat back. Why? All that time I spent in it, the work we all did together, that boat, that's all I got. The boys, that's all I got. I can't lose that. That sounds to me like some kind of Western movie. I was waiting for the sort of gunshots and the glass to slide across the bar. Well, funnily enough, tumbleweed is something that you will think about a lot with this movie. Um, this is, <laughs> I was talking to I, I was talking to our mate Babs the other day. We were talking about this, and uh, yeah. I did say to her, uh, "This is this is the kind of movie where if you went to the cinema box office and asked for a ticket for this, they should give you a fisherman's friend with each ticket that they sell." Uh, it is it's very clearly aimed at like older dads. It's aimed at like 70-year-old dads in cardigans. And that's when you realise that George Clooney is actually 62 now. Like, oh, oh, is he? Like, well, you have that moment. Like, of course he is. Yeah, wow, I mean, enough time has passed. Um, and yes, I mean, he's always been obsessed with a very specific, like, 20-year period of American history, like mid-30s to mid-50s. That seems to be kind of where Clooney is obsessed with culturally. Uh, it just, it's a very perfunctory film. It's one of those, if, if the movie was a living person, you could feel its pulse. It would never spike. Like, at no point. And this is a movie that has to involve, like, race sequences, rowing race sequences, and there is no intensity whatsoever. At one point, they are fighting for their country's pride, you know, versus the Nazis. And it still plays with all the vim and vigor of a sequence in which they're literally sanding at the underside of a boat. Like, the same exact bass. Like, what are we doing here? Come on, George, you were from Dustal Dawn, for God's sake. You are the peacemaker. You know pacing. What the hell are you doing? And, I mean, Callum Turner is about as forgettable as you can get. He's sporting this ridiculous, like, blonde dye job as well, which makes you think of, like, Chris Hemsworth in the first Thor movie, where he had the, the eyebrows and the beard as well. It's absolutely absurd. Right, Joel Edgerton is just there to be, like, insert curmudgeon coach here. Um, I can't remember any of the cast members to this because they're all so generic and so forgettable. Don't get me wrong, it's perfectly fine on a middle-of-the-road level. And if you are a 70-plus dad or someone who, you know, as Petri Hoskin on Talk TV pointed out, hasn't worn jeans in 30 years, you'll love it, I'm sure. My mum would love it. My mum would think this was great. I'm sure. I'm sure my dad would love it. The man has no personality, but I'm sure he'd love it. Um, unfortunately, I, I do have a personality, and I I am young enough to know how a text message works. No, this is just this is not good enough. The Jesse Owens one, which wasn't great, was better than this. The absolutely abysmal George Foreman one had more excitement in it than this. If you're going for an underdog sports movie, there are a billion better options than this. This just happens to be the one by George Clooney, and in its defense, at least it looks pretty. 
Well, if you want to go and see the pretty little things on a big screen, you can, because it is in cinemas from today, The Boys in the Boat. Um, right. This is really fascinating me, this movie. It's got Emma mm. Stone in. It's called Poor Things. Uh, from what I can gather, it's about um, a young woman who was brought back to life from an unorthodox scientist. And that really captures my imagination. And I, mean, I want to know what this was all about. Oh, buddy, you don't even know. I love your synopsis because it's kind of like just the tip. Right, let me let me give you this. Okay. Oh, okay. So, Emma Stone is a woman who, whilst heavily pregnant, threw herself off a bridge in Victorian London in an attempt oh. to end her own life. She is found by a mad scientist played by a disfigured Willem Dafoe who realises that while she is brain-dead, her unborn infant is not. He then removes said infant, removes brain from said infant, and pops it into Emma Stone's head. So what you have is Emma Stone with the brain of a newborn baby. Yes. Um, She also, looking like Emma Stone, seems to have a certain appeal to every man that meets her one of whom is a new research assistant hired by Willem Dafoe, who immediately asks for her hand in marriage, which is accepted by Willem Dafoe. However, Emma Stone, who plays... uh, Her name's character's name is Bella Baxter, by the way, um, says, sure, but first, I want to pop off with this sleazy lawyer played by Mark Ruffalo and sow my wild oats. But while she does... Inadvertently, she discovers philosophy and intellectualism, and the sudden expanding expansion of her mental horizons causes her entire world back home to be absolutely upended. Well, not only just her entire world, but every every person who has an expectation of her to become upended as she discovers independence and bodily autonomy. Have a listen to this clip. This is after she's returned home to her dying would-be father, played by Willem Dafoe. Wedderburn became much weepy and sweary when he discovered my whoring. I find myself merely jealous of the men's time with you rather than any moral aspersion against you. It is your body, Bella Baxter, yours to give freely. I generally charge 30 francs. Well, that seems low. <laughs> right. Okay. I mean, I could see this going in many different routes. I mean, I've got so many questions. Like, when the yeah. brain is put into her head, is she just crying like a baby? No, because we, we joined the story long after this has happened. So she's right. she's, kind, she's kind of at, like, you know, child level. She's like, you know, I think she's meant to be, like, six, five, six years old, maybe. I think she's she walks around. She has the physicality of Data's daughter, Lull, from Star Trek The Next Generation. It's the best way I can describe it. And you've heard how she talks. So that's actually quite advanced. When we start the movie, she, she speaks a lot more broken. She, the, the, the English is a lot more broken, a lot more childlike. And it's a fascinating performance. It's an incredible, and it's a fearless performance as well. Absolutely fearless. Um, obviously, this won the Golden Globe this past week for Best Actress in Musical Comedy, <laughs> in so much as you can call this a comedy. Um, I would call it an iconoclastic <laughs> Frankenstein's monster story by way of a coming-of-age tale. Um Fantastic performances all around. Emma Stone, absolutely capital A, acting, killing it in this. Um, Mark Ruffalo, wonderfully playing against type. Uh, Willem Dafoe just having a gas, because he's Willem Dafoe, damn it, damn it. And uh, it's a nobody could have shot this like Yorgos Lantimos. It's got his house style. Even down to his opening titles, it is just a requisite Lantimian efforts like nobody else could have done this and nobody makes movies like this i don't think it's as good as the favorite because i think the favorite was sharper it was funnier 
this though, I wouldn't sneer at this. It's still a five star movie. I still gave this five stars in my in my my write up of it. It's a fantastic movie, but it's not as fantastic as the favorite for me, which I think just ticked too many more boxes. And also, I think it had a, I think it had a, a just a, a more. Mm, I wouldn't say more interesting role for Emma Stone, because I don't think you can get more interesting than this one. But I will say, this is a movie... You go, take Bex and go and see this. That, that's it. Go go for a date with me. Take Bex and go and see It's mental. It's absolutely mad. But you know what? You're going to go for a drink after you see it, and you're not going to shut up about it. The pair of you are going to sit there for two hours in a pub afterwards, just endlessly nattering about different things you loved about this movie. Because I did. I think it's absolutely tremendous. And the fact that I can say it's absolutely tremendous and still not as good as the director's previous one, that's really something. Expect to see this. This is genuinely muddying my predictions for the Oscars now because I did think Lily Gladstone was going to walk it for Killers of the Flower Moon. But I think Emma Stone might walk it. It's it's the fight to the death between the two of them, to be honest. And I'm happy to see it go either way. I don't know. I think I'd prefer Emma Stone. Well, if you want to go and have a look and watch it yourself, um, I do think I will do that, actually. I, I do like a movie that you finish watching, like you say, go for a drink, and then you're constantly chatting about, oh, what if this had happened? Or what if that had happened? Um, so it is in the cinemas from today. Go and see it. Poor things, if you fancy finding out for yourself. Right, still to come, The Beekeeper. And we're going to talk about Priscilla, which I only found out today was written by Priscilla. It's based on her book. It's it's based on Elvis and Me, the memoir. Oh, that makes sense then. I was a bit like, hang on a minute, Priscilla wrote it about Priscilla? What's going on here? So we're going to find out what Van thought of that movie next. Stay there. So, hello and welcome back. We've got two more movies to talk about now. We're going to look at The Beekeeper, Jason Statham's new one, in a moment. I wonder what that's about. First, though, let's look at Priscilla. As you just heard, if you've been listening uh, for the uh, for the last few sections that we've been doing, uh, I just found out that this is based on Priscilla's book, which is why I read that it was Priscilla written by Priscilla. Well, say it's not the Queen of the Desert. Also, brace yourself for when I when, brace yourself for when I do get to tell you what the Beekeeper is about. But uh, so, this is an adaptation of Priscilla Presley's memoir Elvis and Me. So, Priscilla Presley is actually a, a producer on this. It is uh, written and directed for the written for the screen and directed by none other than Sofia Coppola. You know, who gave us the Bling Ring, uh, Marie Antoinette, Lost in Translation, of course, daughter of Francis Ford. You know, Godfather director. Uh, this is actually released, incidentally, through his company, American Zoetrope. And as such, comes with a requisitely gorgeous aesthetic, because of course it does. It's an absolutely glamorous-looking movie. I am going to say this again about another uh, period piece biopic in a moment as well. Not, not in a moment, but in like 10 minutes' time. Um, this stars Kaylee Spaney, I think her name is. Uh, I think she's Australian. Uh, Australian actress who I really remember as having been in Pacific Rim Uprising, the sequel to Pacific Rim. The absolutely terrible sequel. She is the young Priscilla. Priscilla? She Baudelaire? Something like I forget her maiden name, actually. Who, of course, at the age of 14, met one Elvis Aaron Presley. Whilst her family, well, her dad was serving in Germany and her family were living on base. Elvis was serving in Germany at the time. They met as a you know a gathering a sort of you know house party kind of a thing for for the younger soldiers and the young ladies of the base quickly fell in love and of course they then absconded into this magical fairy tale romance which 
let's just say, had its ups and downs. I've got a clip for you of one such down. Uh, this is Elvis being caught cheating. Oh, well, one of many times Elvis was allegedly caught cheating by Priscilla. What do you mean I'm telling that's not going to work? I can't make it on time. I want to be there in the first place, man. Daddy, I, I'm not to claim that. I don't go imagining things. Like Aunt Margaret? Scooby? I said, woman, I don't want to hear another word. Was there something you're hiding? I don't have a goddamn thing to hide. You're just being too goddamn aggressive in the manner. You know, I think you should go see your parents for a little while. What? I'm not going! I think you should. Matter of fact, I'll help you. Start packing. Joe! Yeah, what's up? Joe, get Stella on the next flight out of here. She's gonna go see her parents for a little while. Get her ticket out of here. Hurry up! I did read in one of the synopsises that I read uh, talking about um, showing unexpected private moments and showing loneliness and a vulnerable best friend. So it does sound like it really goes through the full emotion list here. I'll be honest with you, I don't think there's much ground covered here that wasn't really covered. I mean, there's a, aside for a couple of short moments, there's not much covered here that wasn't covered better, I think, in the Baz Luhrmann one. I will also say that as far as the Elvis of it all goes, uh, Austin Butler, <clears throat> I think, got a better time in the Elvis one, gave a better performance than what we get from Jacob Elordi in this. I'm not a huge Jacob Elordi guy, but the record, I know Saltburn has been really popular over Christmas, like people have been discovering Saltburn on Prime, and he is a big part of the appeal of Saltburn for the younger crowd, obviously, but I just think he looks like a stretched Josh Hutcherson. Which oh who who is going to be in the we can talk about him in the next film we're going to talk about he's stretched Josh Richardson but English um, he is going to be in the the new Del Toro Frankenstein movie I heard where he's replaced Andrew Garfield uh, but anyway beside the point uh, Kaylee Spaney is the reason to see this but I think she is shortchanged by a script that really doesn't add much to the narrative other than being more officially sanctioned by Priscilla. And obviously condemned by the late Lisa Marie, who I think allegedly had read the script and disapproved, thought it cast her dad in a very bad light. I don't think it casts Elvis in much of a bad light that he wasn't already, or that Baz Luhrmann hadn't done. If anything, I mean, it focuses slightly more on the infidelity and the the toxic side of him, I think, rather than just making him out to be an all-around negative guy, which I think Baz Luhrmann really did. But as I say, this comes down to an interesting performance, not particularly groundbreaking performance, but an engaging and interesting one from Kaylee Spaney. I think, I, I would say it's a better run of a similar thing that we got in the Jackie O movie, the Natalie Portman Jackie O movie. I think it was just called Jackie uh, back in 2016, 2017. This is a more enjoyable movie than that, and I think uh, a better movie all round. But I would say it doesn't add anything new to the Elvis mythos. I think coming so soon after Baz Luhrmann's one, you do feel like this needed a couple of years for it to for it to really be appreciated in any kind of way other than this is the DLC, and it's not much in the way of DLC. You're not giving me much new content here. Um, there are elements I did, I was intrigued by, though. And I will say that the film does a very fine job of balancing the fairy tale elements of, you know, being the young princess in the kingdom, the, the young princess being brought into this magical kingdom, uh, with the outright horror of what it is it witnessing. It balances those two things decently well, but you do feel like you're watching deleted scenes from the other one. Um, having said that, the things that I didn't, consider before then were things like Elvis's dad having to become her legal guardian so that she could move into Graceland and 
get hit. And he's, oh. like, this is what I mean about showing you the horror of it. Like, oh, that is not pleasant. No. Yeah, there is, there's a lot of, uh, lot of that. And, th- and, you know, thankfully they do not, do, there's no revisionism that I can see applied to this. I know enough of the Elvis story that I didn't see anything that I sat like, eh, you know, it's not really historically accurate. Worked for me. Um, not revolutionary. Uh, if you've seen the Baz Luhrmann one recently, you might find this a bit repetitive. It's also not much in terms of an expansive, all-encompassing story. It's very much confined to a specific period of Elvis's story, or uh, you know, basically just their marriage. That is the story of their marriage, which, as most of us know, didn't really last that long. So anyway, that's uh, Priscilla. It's out there now. It's it's pretty good. It's nothing revelatory. It's pretty good. Well, uh, go and see it if you fancy it. Let's move on. Um, Now, The Beekeeper. Clearly, I was being sarcastic. It's obviously got nothing to do with beekeepers, (laughs) but I'm assuming it's got something to do with the name of something. I'm just guessing here. Strap on in, ball. Right. Jason Statham is The Beekeeper. Not only is he a beekeeper, he is the capital B Beekeeper. Right. He is the beekeeper on a you know very nice statement by uh, you know a, a retired school teacher, lonely woman played by Felicia Richard, who is also the trustee for a children's charity for homeless and abused children. One day she is targeted by an online phishing scam who take all of her financial details and fleece her and the homeless, abused, orphaned, whatever children, and of course shamed. Destroyed inside, she takes her own life. But Statham will not stand around and grieve like any normal person. Oh no, for as I say, he is not just the bee- a beekeeper, he is the beekeeper. The only surviving to retire an age member of a clandestine organization dedicated to protecting democracy using whatever means necessary. <laughs> it's, the more you say it out loud. <laughs> Dedicated, dedicated to de- protecting democracy when all else fails. He doesn't have to answer to the system. His whole thing is to protect the hive when the structure breaks down. And he does this by literally attempting to murder the internet. Have a listen to what happens when he turns up at a lavish office park run by fishing scammers. Okay. I'm a beekeeper. I protect the hive. Sometimes I use fire to smoke out hornets. This is a multi-million dollar operation. Okay, so you can't come up here white knighting. Will you stomp his ass out, please? Well, I'm still a bit lost with how that all went before the clip, if I'm honest. Like, I still don't really understand what this is about. He's basically just a retired spy who's working as a beekeeper. (laughs) I mean, put it this way, on no fewer than six occasions do they describe Jason Statham's character as simply... He keeps bees. That's all they do. Like Statham himself, he walks up, I keep bees. Over and over. This is all you hear. It's wonderful. I absolutely bloody loved it. Oh, what a movie. This is what I need. This is a January movie. You know, every January, we get a trash action movie that knows how to have a good time. Last year, we got Plane. This year, we get The Beekeeper. In fact, if you're in the States, you get two, because you get The Beekeeper and The Britlayer on the same day. Now, that is a Barbenheimer, baby. So, similar plots as well. Um... This is just an absolute 
ride. So if you think it's a movie that's too classy to whip out a to be or not to be in its dialogue. Oh, no. They do. They really do. If you think it's a movie in which Jason Statham is not going to set people on fire using honey as an accelerant, strap on in, baby. If you think it's a movie in which uh, Josh Hutchison's not going to turn up playing evil Hunter Biden as the villain, strap on in, baby. If you Honestly. It's everything you want from a Jason Statham movie in January. In the middle of all the awards crap we've got to sit through, Stath knows how to bring it, and he brings it hard. It's directed by David Ayer. It's got second unit direction from, I think it's J- uh, J- Jeremy Marina uh, from 8711, which is the, the stunt team from 87 North. You know the guys that gave us John Wick, Nobody, Atomic Blonde, Violent Night? Those guys are doing the action scenes for this, and it's got a script by Kurt Wimmer, who wrote Law Abiding Citizen. My friend, I could not give you a sexier pitch for a movie if I tried. Avoid all other movies like The Plague except for Poor Things this weekend. Go and see Beekeeper. And if Beekeeper sold out, then go and see Poor Things by all means. But if you want a good time this weekend, I give you The Beekeeper. Sweet like honey. Boom. Well, there you go. It is out in cinemas from today. Go and see Statham catching bees uh right uh we will move on we got two left from today's show we're going to look at scala and also maestro which is actually something you can watch without leaving the house we'll see what van thought about it next stay there Hello and welcome back for one last ride with two movies left to cover. We are going to talk about Scala in a moment, which is already out in cinemas. Uh, and also Maestro, we'll start with, on Netflix. It's, it's been on Netflix since the end of December. Uh, this is, of course, Bradley Cooper's new movie. Please tell me there's no singing. Oh, no, no, there's no singing. There Good. is music because he's playing Leonard Bernstein in a biopic about Leonard Bernstein and the relationship between his wife and Leonard Bernstein in a movie using the music of Leonard Bernstein. Are you familiar, <laughs> with, are you familiar with Leonard Bernstein at all, Adam? No, but I feel I would be after this movie. Well... No, you wouldn't, actually, because it's a very generic movie you'll be bored as hell through, and nobody cares about Leonard Bernstein! Sorry. Anyway, I, I just, I'm just letting it out, because I had to sit through... Uh, hang on, Who is Leonard think. Bernstein? I, I had to sit through 2 hours and 11 minutes. He was a, a famous composer, did a lot of music for movies and things back in the day. Oh. Um, the movie is produced by uh, Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg, both of whom worked with Leonard Bernstein, and this stems from Bradley Cooper's apparent lifelong love of conducting music, which he then spent six years learning to conduct music for. And uh, oh. I say, this is the story of how Leonard Bernstein became a famous conductor and then met his wife and cheated on her repeatedly. And then she died and he conducted music and he carried on having it off with people and conducting music. It's really, really boring. Here's a clip. He wants us all to go to Fairfield together for two weeks. He sounded different. Felicia. No, I... I, Let's not make excuses. He didn't fail me. It's Felicia. No, it's... It's my own arrogance. To think I could survive on what he could give. It's just so ironic. I would look at everyone, even my own children, with such pity because of their longing for his attention. It was... It was sort of a banner I wore so proudly. I don't need. I don't need. 
And <laughs> look at me now. Who's the one who hasn't been honest? Well, yes, I would agree. Really boring. <laughs> Did you stay awake? <laughs> I really wish I hadn't. Oh my god, it's insufferable. Do you know, at times, this genuinely feels like one of those fake movies they invent for episodes of Entourage. Like, even the performance by Bradley Cooper, because he's got this ridiculous plastic nose on. That Because, obviously, you can tell from the name Bernstein that uh, he was a member of a very specific tribe. So, uh, there is a prosthetic effect applied to Bradley Cooper that... I'm sorry, it's problematic. It is problematic. The voice he chooses to put on as well, in you know, in conjunction with that... Is problematic. Apparently, Bernstein's own family have no issue with it. But, uh, yeah, no. Other people do, and I'm inclined to agree with them. Because, wow. I mean, just find a Jewish actor. This is not that hard. Oh, wait. You'd need them to also direct it and try and grandstand and win a goddamn Oscar out of it. Which is what Cooper's doing here. It's worth noting, this is a really well-directed movie. It looks incredible. Like, gorgeous-looking movie. Like, really well-directed. Some incredible editing choices. And you can see that, you know, obviously... You know, Scorsese is a producer on this, so of course, you know, Bradders can also go and ask his mate Marty, you know, what would Thelma do here? You know, how would she edit this? You know, and he and she's got the right feedback. He has, however, also generated a movie that is absolutely mystifying as an answer to the question, what do you think the audience would want to see that would, would make a really good awards baby? What do you think might get him that Oscar this year? What does he think? could face off against Oppenheimer, for instance, at the Oscars. What does he think will get him that best actor trophy opposite Killian Murphy? And then you get a movie that, rather like his actual real-world campaigning for the awards, is so self-serious, so self-aggrandizing, so pompous, stuffy, full of itself and uninteresting, that, honest to God, you'd wish you were in a coma. I really did. The fact that he chain smoked all the way through it, I actually just thought was obnoxious because, frankly, that's what I wish I was doing all of the way through. I found it so taxing. <laughs> and I'm like, thank God I don't have any cigarettes in the house because my neighbors would be complaining right now. And no. Every year we get one of these, an absolutely insufferable, self important, usually in black and white. This is like two thirds in black and white. Self important, self aggrandizing, Peter Crap, Oscar baby. Last year, was it last year or the year before it was Mank? This is the one for this year. This is the worst awards contender of 2023-4. This is the one. Go away, Bradley. Nobody likes you. Go back to doing comedies. Please, do yourself the favour. Well, there you go. Van Connor has spoken. Uh, if you want to go and make your own mind up, though, and go and see Maestro yourself, uh, well, Don't. it is on Netflix. But you could try it because it's going to cost you nothing if you've already got Netflix. Let's it be honest. It will cost you time. It will cost you time. <laughs> I knew. And, uh, two hours and 11 minutes that you will not get back. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. I knew it was coming. Um, all right. We will move on to Scala. Now, um, the, uh, <laughs> the synopsis for this, it says Scala or the incredibly strange rise and fall of the world's wildest cinema and how it influenced a mix-up generation of weirdos and misfits. And I did laugh at that, I must admit. Yep. That is its full and unabridged title. They've gone full Doctor Strangelove on this. Do you know the Scala cinema at all? Are you familiar with Scala? No, no, I know nothing. 
is, is uh, you met, you've met my friend Zara. We met her at Top Gun a couple of years ago, and uh, yeah. she actually lives. Her flat is across the road from this building, so I have known this building for years now, but I didn't know the history behind it. So the story goes that you had the Scala Cinema that opened in the late seventies, I believe, and I think it opened just up the road from where the current building is. The current building is uh, next to King's Cross Station. Uh, it was opened up the road and, uh, was it King's Road? I think it was up on King's Road originally. Um, shut down and then moved into this building that at the time was like a wildlife experience called the, uh, the, the Primatarium, I think it was called. And they became the go-to British grindhouse. They were the Prince Charles Cinema before the Prince Charles Cinema existed. They showed every kind of wacky art house exploitation, black exploitation, martial arts, horror flick you can think of. And they got. And bear in mind, this was during the eighties. They moved into that building in eighty one. Um, they got away with this during the heights of you know the Merry White House, Video Nasties, Thatcher's eighties Britain hellscape solely by making sure that everybody who went to the cinema had to have a membership card. So they got away with showing movies that didn't have ratings and things like that because they weren't showing them to the general public. They were showing them to a members club. Absolute genius. I've not looked into the legality of that because I'd be really curious to know what you get away with on that. And this is the story of that cinema, of all the misfits, of all the weirdos, and the bevy of now huge household names that were amongst its regular cinema goers. Have a listen. They found the auteur version of sexploitation. And having felt myself to be a radical feminist, it felt most peculiar. The scarlet. Well, can outsiders and fakes belong and feel welcome? And it blew my mind. Which is a good way to see movies. You didn't go there just in case you might trip over somebody having a shag on the carpet. I don't see there's any harm in it at all. I said, I think I have a dead body in my office. That's what it felt like. Can you dig it? You don't get that um, in a multiplex. <laughs> I do love the sound of this, and I feel that this is definitely a movie that is up your street. I think I would enjoy it, but of course I think the history of cinema is definitely something more that you would get stuck into and, and, and revel in. I think, no, I don't know. I think, you know, being cause we're, you know, the same age, and I think look, remembering what you remember of that time period, which isn't very much, but you remember the films that were out kind of in that era. And you're like, yeah. What must it have been like to have been there? And this is a really palpable exploration of that. And so the names you get in there, which are people like Adam Buxton and, and Stuart Lee and you know, like, like household like comedic names and big filmmakers like Mary Harron and, and John Waters. John Waters, very front and centre in this, obviously. And uh, you say it's made, but it's actually written and directed by people who actually worked at the Scala back in the day. It's a phenomenal documentary. It's a real insight. I personally was really fascinated yeah, I, I know Kim Newman, obviously, because I'm a working film critic in Britain. I was fascinated to discover that Kim Newman was once young, and he looked exactly the bloody same. I actually <laughs> text Kermode halfway through watching this. I genuinely text Kermode and said, I'm just watching Scala now. Am I right in thinking this was just the PCC before the PCC? He goes... Yes, yes, it was, and yes, it, uh, yes, I did, and yes, it was, and I'm like, wow, this is phenomenal. I went. Also, were you just busy the day they were filming there? Because it was obviously clearly the kind of place he would have gone all the time. Um, fascinating way to just explore what cinema culture must have been like in the eighties, but in a distinctly British way. Because we see this kind of thing 
all the time with like, you know, classic Americana and things like that. Seeing it with uniquely British film, that is really something. If you if you're someone that loves movies like The Evil Dead and the work of John Waters and Eraserhead, because I think the very first movie they showed was Eraserhead by uh, by, by David Lynch. Wow. And uh, and the very last film they showed because they shut down under circumstances I won't spoil for you but it does involve Stanley Kubrick. Um, the very last film they ever showed was also the very first movie they showed when they opened in the Primatarium, which was King Kong. It was the original 1933 King Kong. They opened in a former wildlife experience with King Kong, and when they shut down, they, they, they used the same movie. And it's a wonderful story, really lovingly told. The way that it's it's captured, the way that it's realised, uses like classic vintage graphics and fonts, and shows you there's a wonderful use of the old artwork that they used to use. It's everything about how I would want to run a, a nostalgic repertory cinema, which is actually my dream. Um, this is it, it, it's absolute testimony to that, and it's an absolute love song to uh, a love letter. Sorry, love song, uh, love letter to uh, you know the wonder of British cinema in the 1980s. Well, it would be a love song if Bradley Cooper was in it, but he's not, thankfully. Um, well, there you go. Off, so off tune. Off tune if Bradley Cooper was doing it. <laughs> if you want to see it, well, it's already in cinemas. Go and check out Scala. Right, before we have a quick brief look at next week, what are you choosing for movie of the week today then, Van? Because, I mean, you've got to be torn between The Beekeeper and Poor Things. I am torn between The Beekeeper and Poor Things. And even though I know that The Beekeeper is not going to win any Oscars, which is a shame, because it bloody well should. It really, really should. If there was a stunt choreography, it would probably be nominated. It would be nominated. But um, I'm going to say The Beekeeper. It's too much fun. Go and see The Beekeeper. But if you want something a little bit more highbrow, fine, go and see Poor Things. They're both very good. All right, well, um, we're almost done, but just have a quick look ahead to next week. What have we got to look forward to that you're going to see in between now and then? So, um, in no particular order, next week we have got The End at Where We Start From. Don't know much about that one, as well as The Book of Clarence and The Kitchen. But the two that I do know about, and I'll never turn down any documentary about Werner Herzog. Werner Herzog, who weirdly it turns out, actually exists within the Avengers universe we discovered over Christmas. If you're watching What If over Christmas, they do establish that Werner Herzog exists in the MCU and Tony Stark is a fan of him. So there is a new Werner Herzog documentary called Werner Herzog Radical Dreamer out for next week and something I have really been looking forward to. Uh, the new Alexander Payne movie, uh, One Paul Giamatti, my boy Paulie G, won himself a Golden Globe on Sunday night for The Holdovers, which I can't cannot wait to see that is out this next week so have a look at that one when it comes right we'll see what you think to that of course that's all we've got time for this week we will be back next week until then i've been adam ball i've been van connor and we shall return